Hello, and welcome to Compulsive Reader Talks. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the Awabakal people, the original custodians of the unceded land where I am, and pay my respects to elders past, present, and emerging. Our guest today, Angus Gaunt, runs the popular Sappho bookstore in Glebe, Sydney, and is the author of Prime Cuts and Black Rabbit, and I think another book as well, which we'll talk about later. Um, but both of those are published, uh, Prime Cuts and Black Rabbit, both published by Gin and Dara Press. Angus, welcome. Thanks very much, Maggie. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's, a, it's an absolute pleasure. And um, just, it would be great to hear from you how, before we get into the reading and the talking about Black Rabbit, uh, which is really a, an amazing book, but before we start with that, can I ask how 2020, this bizarre and uncomfortable year, has been um, impacting on the bookstore, on your writing? Um, how's it been for you? Um, it's not been too bad for me personally, because I'm fairly introverted. So um, I, don't, um, I don't mind um, being a bit isolated. Uh, the bookstore, it's, um, it's actually, we, we did close for a about 10 weeks or so but um since we've reopened it's it's been holding up remarkably well i would say so we're we're still in business okay and, um, wonderful yeah we're okay well, that's yeah. good i'm grabbing my copy of black rabbit okay so here it is back to the spot okay um now black rabbit there we go absolutely gorgeous cover um before you start reading from it, tell me a little bit about the cover. I, I had it sitting on my desk and absolutely everybody who walked into my house and into my room had to pick up the book and look at it because the cover is so unusual, striking. Yeah. You, you can just it's, sit and um, kind of look at it. It's its own story almost. I, yeah, it's very, it's very eye-catching. It's, um, it's done by um, an artist friend called um, Emily Hunt, who actually used to work in the bookstore. And she um, she's done a lot of um, uh, larger works in this sort of style, which I think she calls grotesque. And so this is just a little um, a little section of one of her larger works. Um, yes, it's certainly <laughs> it's certainly eye catching. It's done its job. I yes, I think it yeah. puts you in the right mind for reading the book too. Um, it so you you right. don't go in kind of. You go in expecting things to be um, a little bit dark, but not too somber. Yeah, yeah. So um, I think now would be a great time if you could just, just read a little from the book so people can get a sense of your yeah. prose style. Okay. So I'll read a little bit, bit from, um, this is from a pivotal point in the book where um, the power balance between the two characters um, shifts suddenly shifts completely into in, into and, and it after this it sort of takes us on towards the end um, okay the first Morris might have expected to detect anything is about half a second before it happens as he turns around when his eye is momentarily caught by the sight of the hardened yolk of his breakfast egg plastered thinly across the corner of an unwashed plate he wonders why he did not put it into soak and is telling himself that he will do so while he waits for the kettle to boil when he glimpses the raising of Sanford's eyebrows as those unseen hooks attached to the skin of his forehead are being tugged backwards across his scalp. 
Simultaneously, his lips assume a related shape, the lower being squashed into the upper, the force of their contact pushing out in a thin bulbous layer, the flesh beneath it, where he has, Morris now notices, neglected to shave. His nostrils flare, his chin disappears into a square of hard pocked flesh. Morris has time for a single thought, which is that Sanford is about to faint again, perhaps die this time, that it seems somehow right, if inconvenient, that it should happen here, in this house, in front of him. The common trajectory of his facial features, it becomes clear in the next split second, is aligning them with his unfurled right arm, which is flung out behind his back, and on the end of which, although he cannot see it until it has traveled a certain distance towards him, Sandford's fist is clasped. Like a discus thrower, he swivels on the ball of his outer foot, channeling the energy from the other parts of his body into the wide arc his right hand is making on its way to a point between Morris's own cheek and jaw where it connects with a force Morris does not feel until he comes to, blinking and disoriented, a few seconds later. What he can hear is gushing water. It is Sanford standing at the sink behind him, soothing his bruised hand. Morris is lying on the floor. It is not a giving surface and the linoleum feels sticky against his cheek. On the other side of his face, he can feel the traces of a ball he must have been in the process of swallowing but the ball is, in, is his own swollen tongue and what he is swallowing is blood. He has been hauling himself away from the middle of a whirlpool, a huge sucking corkscrew of indiscriminate power. These, those concentric circles are everywhere, rotating at dizzying speed in the vortex itself, but slower in the pink and purple windows of the rabbit's kaleidoscopic eye, in his son lumbering round and round the rugby field in the openings to secrets known only to him, beginning with his wife's round stockinged knee, in the faces with which Patricia surrounded herself, where they float rather, like corks on the ocean. He has paused, exhausted, unsure whether he has the strength to continue hauling himself up, dazed and relieved to find himself in touch with this unmoving floor. He stays there for a minute or two, making no attempt to move anything except his eyes. In spite of the surface, it feels better than trying to lift his head, for when he does so, he sees stars. They drift in and out of his vision, dim suspended circles coming and going, large and small, hard and soft, fading to nothing, then growing again like slow, silent explosions. They might be the disembodied neurons in his brain, trying to reconnect with one another. Morris is starting to think again. What does he do now? What should be his next move? He's not a violent man. He has never struck another human being except on the rugby field where it doesn't count. As a young man, once he was present at a bar fight, at a bar where a fight broke out and had, he will admit, been an enthusiastic spectator, although he had never felt the urge to join in. Having grazed another time the corner of someone's Ford Falcon in a car park, he found himself confronted by its fist itching owner whom he was able to stare down by stepping out of his own car and demonstrating his vastly superior height, five or six inches of it, although he would probably not have done so if the owner had been less small. The thing is, he has no idea how to proceed. He has never been part of a world where these things happen. Is there a fighter's code of behavior, a 
protocol he could follow? Should he be attempting to return the favor? Should he be, he be pretending it didn't happen? Is there something he's expected to say? And then what is the form when you open your eyes and find your attacker calmly attending to his own injuries? It is all new ground for Morris and it does not look as though Sanford is going to help by providing a lead of any sort. He struggles into a sitting position and tries to focus. With some effort, he pulls his double vision together. His tongue hesitates to explore the inside of his mouth for fear of what it might find. His eye aches. What was that for? He hears himself saying. I think we'll stop there. Great, thank you. Um, I, I think I can guess, but what made you pick that passage to read? Um, when I was writing it, I felt that that was, I, I, I made that into a sort of pivotal point. Mm. And um, I, I, wanted to, I wanted it to go all a bit surreal and for the readers to sort of emerge from the other side with, uh, with this, this new reality where Sanford's now in charge. So from a technical point of view, I, I found I wanted to make that the sort of the, mo the moment where it all, where everything changes. For sure. And I, I think, felt... yeah, sorry, keep going. No, I was going to go on. I was just going to go on to another point, actually, <laughs> just about how I wrote. I wrote it I f <clears throat> when I was writing. Um, I felt that um, in in my in my view the um, the success of the novel for the reader um, would be based on um, the plausibility of all this stuff happening of, of what actually happens in in the in the plot um, in the context of the reading. So, if you just recounted the plot, you'd without reading the book you'd say okay well it doesn't sound very plausible but I wanted to take that and just by the writing drag the reader in and make them feel that it was actually plausible and this was to me this was the key part. Mm. Yes because it reveals so much too I think in that passage that you've read about probably more about um, Morris than about um, than about Sanford although there's a yeah. <laughs> His physical description in the beginning of your reading is, is pretty, um, pretty evocative, I should say. Yeah. But I, I think it's the observations that happen through Morris's point of view that really um, gets us to, I guess, start to think for the first time that he's a little bit, maybe a little bit more than what he appears and what he's made himself out to be. Yeah, yeah. It, <clears throat> I guess it's... Um... There's, um, there's various little moments. This is the big moment, I think, but there's various little moments where things unfurl and you, hopefully you get, um, you understand a little bit more about this character and something is revealed. And um, yeah, by the end, they're not who you thought they were at the beginning. Yes, I almost feel like the punch at that point, which definitely is unexpected <laughs> as you're reading it. Um, and I, I'm sure that's, that was intentional, but I feel like the punch is almost a wake up for, for Maurice. It, it, it knocks him out and it wakes him up in some- Yeah, exactly, yeah. 
it it does. It's like it's like he wasn't getting it all was all all, all the script all this. But sorry. He's lived by a script and he wants a script. And yeah, he, right. He happen, so. Yeah, he 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 just he doesn't get it. <laughs> he I don't know whether he, he quite gets it after this, but he's he's now on a sort of he's on a sort of um, uh, a path that he can't get off mm. after this. Yes. And yet he's, you know, by all accounts, and I guess this is why the novel is so powerful, you know, we kind of recognize that we're all a little bit, <laughs> none of us perhaps are as successful, but we're all a little bit on that trajectory. We all swallow the things that, uh, that Morris swallows. You know, this is the world we live in, isn't it? He's successful um, at the start and, uh, and stilted. He's doing all the right yeah. and they're all wrong. Yeah, I, th I guess um, at the beginning, things are quite sort of black and white for Morris. Um, and by the end, by the end, they're all totally grey. Mm. He doesn't really know. He's had everything completely turned upside down. But I feel that he's achieved a, cer a certain sort of... Um, a certain recognition of himself, a certain sort of almost, almost a, a peace. Mm. Yes, and it's an interesting yeah. twist between outer and inner. So he's got inner peace and, you know, maybe outer turmoil. Something like that, yeah. Yes, yes. Sanford doesn't get less odd as the novel progresses. <laughs> he's quite no, well, he's, um, to me, he was, he was a, he, he's a, a bit of an unknown quantity all the way through. Mm. I don't really know. I don't even really know where he came from. Actually, um, he's certainly not based on anyone that I that I've ever known. He's a sort of he's he sort of just sort of grew sort of out of this sort of amorphous threat, and um, this sort of strange character emerged to take Morris on this journey. But, yes. Um, when I, when I originally conceived this this novel, which was quite a long time ago, actually, um, I was it was going to be something quite different. Actually, it was actually going to be more about the. Um, it wasn't going to be about Sanford and Morris. It was going to be more about um, Sanford and the arms. And Morris was going to gain some something by um, by by um, um, <clears throat> sort of researching the, um, the relationship between Sanford and the arm. And I started writing it and after a page, I thought, oh God, <laughs> after thinking about it for quite a long time, I wrote a page and thought, oh God, this isn't gonna work. I can't do this. And it just sort of, it just sort of gradually changed into something completely different, which is um, something that often happens, which I, I like about writing. You start something, you think it's going in a particular direction, and then it just sort of meanders off somewhere else. It just seems to want to. And the characters start pulling, pulling it and pushing it in different directions, and you sort of, I don't know, end up going with it. 
almost not quite not exactly losing control but just sort of being a bit being sort of guided in a different way you talk about taking the reader with you into this i guess this sort of almost surreal space and i couldn't help but thinking as i was reading the book that there was something very you know i hate to even use the word because it sounds so pompous and makes me think of Woody Allen at the same time, but, you know, Kafkaesque. <laughs> While I was reading the book, um, this, this sense of, you know, you're, you're in a space where, um, where absurd things happen and they're mundane. Yeah. Um, to me, um, yeah, I, 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 I did want to put make it a bit surreal, mainly at the point where I, the bit that I just read out. The rest of it, I wasn't really, I was trying to root it in reality. The it wedding made, gets a little it surreal. It seems to have come across it. Sorry, what was that? Um, the the uh, visit to the house towards the end gets a bit surreal as well, to his brother's house. Yeah, well, I, I, I guess it does. I, uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm quite glad you, you, you said that because um, I mean I like I like the idea of that it was surreal. It obviously is a bit of a surreal situation. It's not a situation that would normally happen. But I really tried to write it um, quite straight, without too many sort of flourishes, surreal sort of flourishes, so that so that just the um, the things that were happening were were described um and um nothing nobody was um the reader wasn't being being sort of led too much they were just sort of having this described you're just having this described to you as the reader mm. maybe um, that's the kafka quality of not actually um not providing the clues just dropping us in the world and and you know just using people's perceptions yeah. of it yeah, well, it's, um, I mean, as, as, as a writer, I try to do certain things and then, um, and different readers um, get different things out of it. It's, um, I mean, it's quite interesting having people's comments because um, different people see, see completely different things in, in it and, and, and they feel that they've had a complete, different people have a completely different experience, you know, reading certain bits of it, mm. which is something that, um, which is something I like, but I haven't um, necessarily appreciated much before. Yes, I, I do feel that the book does hint at a theme, <laughs> you know, something to do with vanity, with shallowness, with the whole emptiness of success without connection, um, but it definitely pulls back from the didactic. Yeah, yeah, it does. I think um, I didn't. I didn't want it to be sort of. I didn't want it to be, you know, having a moral or anything or being didactic in any way. I um, part of um, <clears throat> a, a sort of clue as to what I was trying to do. One of the things I was trying to do is in the epigram, which is that quote from Goethe. Um, I never heard of a crime, which I couldn't imagine myself committing, mm. and. Um, without wanting to make too much of that, I thought, oh, this is such a great quote. I'd love to use this as a, the epigram for, 
from the novel. So, so I did, and that's that's sort of, I guess that actually that goes back to the sort of the whole the whole technical problem of of the novel and the making the reader feel that this stuff was all plausible. That was um, that that quote. Um, sort of meshes in with that um, making making the reader f <coughs> making making the reader feel that um, that this could could all happen that Morris could a person like Morris who's just a sort of ordinary person of that particular type could end up doing this thing that he does Yes, it's, it's quite striking. So um, you, you did have an, this interview online um, with the ANZ uh, blog site. And um, yes. you mentioned in that, that you have three novels. <laughs> so I know about Prime Cuts and Black Rabbit. Tell me about the third. Um, oh, did I mention three novels? Um, you did say three novels. <laughs> I, have a, I have got a few novels out there which haven't been published, mm. but... Um, I think actually yes, the one I mentioned there was the one I've just I've just finished, which is okay. a um, it's actually a collection of sh of stories, which which uh, basically just take the aunt character and flesh out her life, which um, which is a com it's a completely different thing from from Black Rabbit. It's it's actually taking somebody's life who where nothing really appears to be happening. Um, you, you, I've, I've, I've known one or two people in, in my life who I've sort of wondered, wondered what they do all day, you know, sort of nothing, they don't appear to, to actually do anything and they, they, but they must have a life, you know, what, what, is, what, is, what is going on? Who do, who do they, um, who are their friends? What do they do? What are their, what are their interests um so that that i sort of i suddenly felt this urge to write this uh, to flesh out this the life of this woman who's basically the same character as aunt patricia although she has a different name and it was um it was actually it was very difficult at the beginning and i thought oh, i'm going to abandon this and then i sort of got into the stride and um i i rather enjoyed it and i I've got a collection of I don't know about a dozen stories covering this woman's life, which um, I I imagine it's not is not going to be exactly publishing gold. <laughs> Book of short stories about somebody who doesn't really do anything. Well, you know, but, Seinfeld did well. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Well, why never, not? <laughs> you can't pick it. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think that, uh, well, I, I will say um, that um, what happens in the publishing world is weird and fickle and um, absolutely impossible to predict. Yeah, that, well, that's right. I, I, I actually sent it off to a publisher the other day and I said, I basically said, here, this, this might be a good challenge for your marketing people. <laughs> that's a good pitch. <laughs> yeah. I will say Meredith did a, a magnificent pitch for, um, for Black Rabbit with me. Um, I mean, I do have a pretty extensive stack. <laughs> I'm very happy. Yeah. You know, I'm lucky that way. And, and I guess, um, 
you know, that's, that's how it is as a, as a, you know, somebody who runs a bookstore too. There's always uh, a stack full of wonderful books that you're dying to get into. Um, so to get something to float to the top, you know, it takes a little, <laughs> it takes a little something, but uh, you, she, she did a really yeah. good job on you. Oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, got your attention anyway. That's, um, that's, um, that's what it was supposed to do. So that's great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I often feel as a reviewer um, that I, you know, my writer self would be mad to put yet another book out into the world um, because there are so many, you know, good ones just waiting for attention, not getting attention. And I know that you've, you've struggled to get, I think, the attention that Black Rabbit deserves. Um, but we do it anyway, don't we? Like it's, the fact that it's not getting attention may be a thorn in the side, but it doesn't stop us. Is there no. something inherently beautiful, <laughs> um, inherently valuable about doing something so resolutely unpractical and unlikely to make money? Yes, absolutely. I, I agree with you 100%. I, I, I mean, I've done this. I've always done this. I've done this all, all, my, all my adult life. And um, yes, I haven't, no, nothing's had, had very much attention. It's nice to have the odd reader, but, um, but I just, I would do it anyway. I think there's, it's just creating something for you, for yourself. It's, it's art, if you like. Um, it's, the world just needs more of it. People, people just being themselves, doing, doing something which is sort of authentic to them rather than always pursuing some, some outer prize, some, you know, some, something, um, something out out there in the world but <laughs> pursuing this, money this mirrors the theme of the book in a way i feel <laughs> this this, I idea, it, this I is the narrative that we build our lives around I could, yeah yeah I, I i i guess perhaps it does yes there's um there, there have been a I've, I've been amazed actually by the by the um number of different ways people have read this this book um just in the just in the feedback i've, I've had people have, people have seen it as all sorts of different things so um yeah i just put it out there and um, people can do with it what they want make of it what they want yes yes i mean um I, I, I think also maybe small publishers and their role in the world of, you know, allowing, allowing for, I guess, a different kind of art to exist. I mean, I know they try uh, to make money as well, but there is something, I think, something a little bit more intimate about that relationship. Yes. Um, well, Jin and Dara is, um, is very good for... Um, just getting stuff out there that most publishers wouldn't wouldn't want to look at because they it's, it's not commercially viable whereas I, I mean i think i think they sort of make it their mission to um to get more stuff out there which they think deserves to be seen even if it's not going to be widely consumed um and i'm very um yeah i'm very thankful to them for for that because it gives things a chance anyway. 
Yes, they have a surprisingly big list for such a small publishing house. It's like two people. Yeah, I think it's, yeah, I'm not sure. It's either two people or I think it's largely one person actually yes. doing it. But, um, he, mm. he just plugs away through yeah. them and um, the books come out. It's great. Yes, and, and with fantastic covers as well. I'm going to show yours again. Right. Yeah. Best as I can do on this screen. We'll probably, uh, yeah. I'll probably just use the audio, but still, you never know. I might put up a video as well. So we don't have much time left. Um, I like to try and keep these to 30 minutes if possible. But um, I, I think as a bookseller in particular, um, I wonder if you have any paradise together, just something wonderful that you've read or seen. It can be, you know, any art related thing, whether a book or, you know, something you've seen that you'd love to recommend to, to listeners. Um, actually, I've just been reading something, which is one of those books that, um, that I can't do anything else. I have to put everything else aside until I've finished it. And it's actually, it's, um, I've just read the second volume. This it's, it's Janet Frame's um, autobiography, which is, um, so she's a, um, you know, the, pretty well-known New Zealand writer. Mm. And it's an, it's an absolute marvel, this. It's incredible. It's, well, I hadn't read much of her stuff before, but she's, um, she, she, <clears throat> she reminds you of, um, she, she remembers so much about, about her life and she writes so beautifully, but she, she takes you there and she makes you f feel as though you're you know, this small child again well in in the bits where she's describing her childhood which is obviously where it starts mm. um it's an absolute marvel mm. is this part we of the same series that became an angel at my table an angel at my table yeah that's um that's um yeah it was made into a movie quite a long time ago um that's the second volume but we've had <clears throat> we've had various copies of this sitting around in the store well we always have a few copies and they don't sell very much but um i'd always meant to meant to read them and wow it's incredible excellent well that's a good recommendation and uh yeah. and also where can listeners and potential readers and i do say you know really um grab a copy of this book it's it's really quite um it's, how do I describe it in one sentence? It's understated, but it really packs a punch. How's that? <laughs> Where can we no, find more I, about you? I'll, and, I'll uh, accept that. In the book. Um, well, I've got a website, which is um, angusgaunt.com. Not a huge amount happens on it, but you can find links to, to the book, where to buy it and that. I've also got a Facebook page, Angus Gaunt author where something, a few things happen occasionally. <laughs> Fantastic. I'll, I will put links in the show notes. And, um, I, you know, I'm definitely looking forward to hearing more about Aunt Patricia and the things that uh, don't happen to her. Yes. <laughs> well, hopefully you will. <laughs>
Yes, I, I think, you know, the older we get, uh, it, it strikes me, the older I get, the more I start to realize that there's something happening everywhere all the time, <laughs> that silence is never silent and, you know, nothing is ever still. And if you look closely, you'll see stuff. Yeah, there's always stuff. Yeah, you can, you can, write, a, you can write about anything. That's the wonderful thing about writing. Yes. Fantastic. Well, that is all we have time for today. But Angus, thank you so much for talking to me. Yeah, well, thanks very much for having me, Maggie. Bye for now. <laughs>